So this morning has been an interesting morning already. Uh, it was kind of a highlight just a moment ago. It seems like about once a year we have real bad printer issues on Sunday morning. And we knew at, on Friday that our, our printer was having trouble. We called the, the um, company that looks into them. And when I spoke to him in the afternoon, he seemed confident with the uh, that inter it was an internet issue and would be fine on Sunday morning. Wasn't fine this morning. We spent about an hour trying to figure out how to print everything. Got it all printed, so I believed. Found out during the third song, as I was just looking over things, that the last two pages of my sermon are not here. Instead, I have an extra copy of the announcement sheet. That is my fault, I am 100% sure. Which would be fine if it wasn't the most important part <laughs> of the message. So I'm going to... Uh, from memory attempt to do part of it that uh, I would rather not, but we'll hope that the, we'll assume and know and rest confidently in the Lord's providence in the midst of it. I don't think it's a surprise to anyone to hear that I love history. I'm what you might call a history nerd. I'm also a Bible nerd, and so every now and then there's this little corner of history that combines the two. And I find myself helpless in any attempt to resist diving into it and learning more about it. <clears throat> this morning we're talking about a Bible passage that's been interpreted in a lot of interesting, sometimes ridiculous, sometimes terrifying ways throughout history. We're talking about the first romance, the first human love story, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And the importance of this story came very sharply into focus for me in 2013 when I was speaking with a young woman who was wrestling with whether or not God loved her. And as we spoke on that, I find that that's not uncommon among young people but for her specifically, she was wrestling with whether or not God loved women as much as he loves men, if he favored men over women. Now, what I did to help her through that is I shared two Hebrew words that she told me were immensely helpful. We're going to, we're going to be looking at those two Hebrew words today. But not yet. That'll be in just a moment. I want to start then by reading the scripture. So please stand for the reading of scripture. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But, no, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. 
That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Please be seated. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that I was going to be sharing two Hebrew words. And now, while I know that's not everyone's most favorite thing to hear about, please stick with me, because if we can get these two words right in our heads, then it might lead us to read this story in a way we never have before. And it just might, like it did for this young woman, help us to understand the love of God in a way that we never did before. And so the first word, I want to encourage you as we go through these words to write them. There's just going to be two. If you're a person who writes in your Bible, and if you have your Bible with you, and by the way, if you don't have your Bible with you, please start bringing your Bible or at least have a phone app you can take notes in. But I want to encourage you to write these two words in the margins around Genesis 2 if you're a person who does that kind of thing. And the first one is A-D-A-M. Adam. The word Adam literally means human. The word Adam literally means human. In your Bible, you should write, Adam means human. Now in our story today, we see that Adam is naming creatures, right? And he isn't giving them proper names like Beth or Dave or Sue, right? He's, he's calling the animals what the name for the animal is going to be. He's naming them dog, cat, bird, snake. His, his name is exactly the same. Adam's name means human. Now I wanted to talk a little bit more about this because if you're named Adam and you're here today, I don't want you to think your name is boring and only means human. There's a lot of special meanings to this name throughout the Bible, but we're not going to go in deeply to it. But if your name is Adam and you want to talk about it later, just let me know. Now when I, when I look at my Bible, I notice that the name Adam is in a heading before verse 4 in chapter 2. It says, Adam and Eve. But the name Adam doesn't actually show up until verse 20. It's kind of strange that it's about Adam, but he doesn't show up until all the way in the bottom. Now he's talked about, but the name isn't there. Instead we see the man. Or it could be the human. Then all of a sudden in verse 20, we start getting Adam. So what changes in verse 20? Well. That's where Eve comes in. Now, I need to teach you your next Hebrew word. Then we're going to look at them together and hopefully see things maybe a little bit differently. The next word is Selah. It's Z-E-L-A. Selah. Most of the times, this word is, is used later in the Bible when the tabernacle or the temple are being built. So for example, when the Ark of the Covenant is being built, it has these rings that you put poles through to carry it, right? They put, because you didn't want to touch the Ark itself because that goes badly the time that it happens. So they had these poles on the sides that you put poles through to carry it. And it says to put them on one sela and then on the other sela, one side and the other side. Because that's what Selah means. It means side. 
Go ahead and write down Z-E-L-A means side. Now, you cannot take the side of a human away, right? Like, what would that mean if you were to fall asleep and someone removed your side from you? So when the Bible says that God put Adam to sleep and took one of his sides, that doesn't make any sense. That's why your Bible says rib. But please hear me. This word occurs more than a hundred times in the Bible. and every single occurrence, it means side. The only time it's written rib is right here. And that makes sense, right? What else could you possibly mean if you take one of the human sides and use it to inform another person? It makes sense why they write rib. But stay with me here. I don't think God took one of the human's ribs. I think the human was split in half, and the two halves were each formed then into what we now know as a person. And that's why after this phrase, the human or the man stopped, and we see Adam's name, because before that moment, the human wasn't Adam like we think of him. The human was whole and then split into two. And if you think about it, that makes sense of so many things. That's why so many of us yearn for another to feel complete. That's why right afterward, the Bible explains that when a man and a woman are united, they become one flesh. The two halves come together and become whole again. So the human split in half. One of them is named Adam, means human, and the other one is named Eve. And you might say, okay, that's interesting. So what? Well, I think there's a few things that we can draw from this. One, we need to be careful with the some of the conclusions we draw from these early chapters of Genesis about gender and how it relates to God. One mistake we make often is that God is male. And I don't think that he is. Human beings were first created with something other than what we now know as male and female. It doesn't mean that male and female isn't real. We talked about it in Sunday school. This isn't a comment on that. Male and female are real things. But the first human was made differently in some way and then split in half. Now, Genders were given to us as a gift, it's a blessing, but it wasn't the same at the beginning. And the reason it wasn't the same at the beginning is because God is not a gender. He's not male. In the Bible, God's called Father. But God also describes himself as a mother. And he does this to help us to understand what he's doing and who he is in the moment. To relate as we think of a father in this way or a mother in this way. God is not male. When he's talking about his discipline or his protection, he calls himself father because in the ancient world, that role belonged to father. When he's talking about birthing or nursing, he's comparing himself to a mother. And he actually says that outright in Isaiah 66, 13. He says, I give you a mother's comfort. <coughs> We call God he as shorthand, and that's not wrong. 
but we shouldn't allow ourselves to think that means God is male. You might wonder why I'm hammering on that, and the reason is this. Can you understand how hard or painful it could be to believe that one person is born more like God than another? God is above gender. We ought not think that the story of Adam and Eve paints a picture of one more like God than the other. Now it is true that Jesus is a man and he is God. And in that moment, God the Son, he comes down and he takes on humanity. And this is the vehicle through which God reveals his love for us, the vehicle through which God saves us. It is amazing and wonderful. And yes, yes, Jesus is male. But I'll need you to just trust me that that doesn't mean God is. And if you're here today and you're feeling like, who would wrestle with this? That's okay. But if you're here today and you have wrestled with whether or not God prefers men over women, please know that he doesn't. One is not more like him than the other. The second thing I think we can draw from this picture is that God does not think men are more important than women. You see, he didn't create man as we think of it now first and then later woman. He created a complete human being who then was split into two. They're two halves of the same whole and neither is more important than the other. The next thing I want us to draw from this is that in the garden, Adam's authority over Eve is hinted at very slightly. It's not crystal clear what exactly that entails. But what we don't have is a picture pre-fall of male authority in the way we often think of it today. I think that because Eve is called Adam's helper, that we assume that means he has some kind of special authority over her. But it doesn't. And that's proven over and over again in the Bible. In fact, the only person other than Eve that's ever called a helper is God. In Psalm 146, verse 5, it says, Blessed are those whose helper is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. The same word used of Eve is used of God, and none of us think that because God is our helper, we somehow have authority over him. For the fall, the male-female relationship was not such that there was a clear authority of one over the other. Adam does get to name Eve after the fall. But it is not clear in the way we often think it is. I want to skip ahead a little bit here, too. While God is describing the consequences of the fall, he does not ordain what we often think he ordains. He describes an aspect of fallen human existence. Genesis 3.16 says this, To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Now, this might surprise you to hear, but I have never birthed a child. If anyone was unsure, now you know. And I hear that it's not altogether a pleasant experience. 
I in fact have a dear friend that in the hospital while giving birth shouted curses at Eve repeatedly whenever she felt pain. And I just got to say that's one way to get through it, right? But it does say that he, he inflicts pain during childbearing as a result of the fall. Now, I think that there's a whole lot we could talk about as why God does that. But he, in some, for some reason, he takes this incredible gift of childbearing, this incredible gift, and he, he changes it a bit. Why? We could talk about. But, but God does do that. But then he says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. It does not say, I will make your desire for your husband or I will make him rule over you. God is describing one of the things that happens in the fall. Men and women are still going to be drawn together. That's not universally true. Of course, some people are blessed with singleness. This isn't every man and every woman, but still there's a drawing together. There are some people who are gifted and blessed with singleness, but many of us recognize still men and women are drawn together. But for women in the world of the fall, because human beings are fallen, men are going to rule over them. In Genesis 3 here, male authority is not something God ordains. It's a consequence that comes from the fall. Now, Feel with me the irony in the work of the evil one where my explanation of this is what is not in my sermon this morning. I think that what's important for us to hear is not that there's no call or role for male authority in marriage. It's not what I'm saying. The Apostle Paul does talk about this several times. I think we do have to be careful because when he says things like a woman should be quiet and learn in full submission. When he says things like, I never allow a woman to have authority over a man. He's talking to a time in a culture where educated 30 year old men were marrying uneducated 15 year old girls, which hits us in a very weird place today, but that was the way things were. But then he says all kinds of crazy things like things that had never been heard before, like then they should learn. In other words, it's almost as though Paul has this picture of what the male and female relationship is supposed to be. Not that they don't have different roles. I believe that they do. There's no way to read the New Testament and not see that men and women have different roles. But it seems like equality is a big deal to Paul. And while it may not be present in the ancient world, he wants us to work toward it. So what does that mean for us today? One of the most common questions I get as a pastor is how does a couple work out the different roles that are given to husband and wife? And this is complicated. When I do premarital counseling, one of the things that I, I do is I talk to the couple about the different ways that Christians can see a marriage relationship in a healthy way. And there are several. We can disagree about them, but instead of them needing to see how I see a marriage relationship, 
I ask what, what kind of relationship they feel like God is calling them to, and then we submit it to the Bible. We want to make sure that it's God-honoring. Sometimes that means a strong, what we would call, complementarian male leadership and female submission. Sometimes that means that can look in a, a variety of different ways. Sometimes it means less of a strong pull or call that way. I don't think that scripture commands us to one or the other very clearly at all. There is something about a husband's leadership in scripture. Absolutely, it's present. But we tend to go back to the story at creation. And we think that what we find here is this primacy, primary leadership, authority, role, honor, power given to man fall. God never says, it's my desire for your husband to rule over you. He says that in a fallen world where human beings are going to be struggling with sin in a way I never intended, it's going to be in such a way that you're going to desire your husband and he's going to rule over you. That's not what God says ought to happen. He says it is what will happen. Does that mean that, mean that husbands should not have leadership? No. What it means is that we need to be very careful about thinking that God's desire for a man or a woman is only submission. It means that we need to be very careful about thinking that there's any kind of hierarchy of value between the two. It means that we need to be careful when we think about a woman as man's helper, that we don't assume that means she's somehow less. Now, can you be a leader without seeing your helper as less or your follower as less? Absolutely. Yes. That's how leaders should be. In fact, leadership all through scripture is called to be servant leadership where the leader considers those following more important than themselves. And we see that principle in the New Testament again and again and again. But one thing that is true is we have stumbled as a church, not Calvary, but the church as a whole, into very toxic or unhealthy practices about who gets to do what and who doesn't in a marriage. And what I think that we need to do is we need to erase, let go of any feeling, any thought, any belief we have that there's a difference in value, a difference in agency or choice or rights, a difference in importance, that we, we reevaluate what we think leadership means. Does leadership mean one person makes all the decisions? I don't see anything like that in Scripture. I do see, men, a warning to us that our own fallenness will pull us toward ruling over our wives. That does not sound like something God wants. It sounds like something that has to do with the twisted up sin within us. And so, what do we take from this story of Adam and Eve? I think we take this. If you're married, 
If you one day want to be married, how do you know that your marriage is a healthy one? Do both people feel honored? Do both people feel loved and valued? Do both feel respected and listened to? Do both feel of equal importance? If the answer is yes, then I think what we're doing is a good job of honoring the love that we are called to in marriage. And if we have an idea about roles that leads one to feel dishonored or undervalued, then we've done something wrong. There's something to husband's leadership in the Bible. Yes, there is. Is it as clear or as strong as we often make it out to be? Hear me. I don't believe that it is. Now, what if you're a single person and you're listening to this this sermon? Or what if you have no desire to get married? What does that mean? I believe that what's true in a marriage is true in every relationship where there are leaders and followers. And that if you are in a relationship, a friendship, a, a work environment, anywhere where you are feeling disrespected and undervalued, that is not the kind of relationship God desires for any of us in any way. I was speaking to someone a while ago. You might think, wow, this is a heavy hammer to hit. Hopefully no one thinks this way. I was speaking to someone just, I don't know, a year ago or so. And she said to me, I didn't know I was allowed to have my own opinions on this kind of a thing. That's not good. Another conversation I've had since I've become pastor at Calvary is I didn't know I was allowed to disagree with my husband. That's not good. If we've allowed a toxic submission to come into our marriage relationships, we've done something very wrong. So my hope is that as you read this story, I've gone on much longer than I intended to. That's what happens when I don't have my, uh, my notes. But when we read this story at the beginning of the Bible, what we would see is God creating a human being and then recognizing that something's missing because companionship is important. He splits the human in two. One's not more or less than the other. And one of the great themes throughout Scripture is the importance, the value, the lifting up that happens in healthy relationships. So my hope is that all of us would see the value in one another and in ourselves and to know that never does God call us to make another feel slighted, disrespected, or unlistened to. That's not what leadership in Scripture means. Let's pray. Father God, you are good. And we praise you. Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see. How you want us to love one another. Lord, I think of the wonderful, delightful, important, messy, 
frustrating relationship of marriage. Lord, you have blessed so many of us here with that incredible gift. What we ask today is that you help us to have eyes to see what you call us to in Scripture. That nowhere is there any kind of heavy-handed leadership called for. But that our, our, our job as men, as husbands, is to lift up honor, prize, desire, and listen to our wives. And his wives, our, our calling is never to only submit, to feel less valued or less important. But Lord, your desire for us is to lift up one another, to value, encourage, and strengthen one another. If this is something that we struggle with, Lord, reveal it to us. Give us the strength to repent. If this is a conversation, if there's a couple here that's never talked about this, we pray that they would today. Do we lead and follow well? Do we both feel respected, upheld, listened to well? Lord, I pray that there would be good fruit in those conversations. We pray these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.